recorded live from the wayofm.org studios in the fabulous Fetter Building in Rochester, New York. Welcome to Transformation Thursday. I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her as well. In this podcast, we take an objective look at dramatic change, and as two transgender women, we know a thing or two about that. And we will talk about transgender issues on this show in a way that we think will be both informative and entertaining. But we'll also be looking at the amazing number of radical changes we're experiencing in our society as well. On today's show, we're looking at personal transformation. What the? He worked the mean streets of the criminal justice system, dispensing justice like a Pez dispenser dispenses candy, mixing metaphors and mixing drinks. I'm not sure that's true or even possible. Until one day he decided to swap the bar for backstage. And now he's living his best life as a performer and a producer. Our guest today is one of the coolest people I know, Rick Starpoli. I hope he's cool enough that he doesn't sue you for that intro. Well, even if he did, all he'd get would be practice. Rick will be talking about the joys and struggles that come with living your best life, even when the universe puts some mighty big obstacles in your path. And in our second segment, we'll be talking about privilege and allyship. Those are words that get thrown around when discussing marginalized people. And we'll be discussing those topics from our very own perspectives. But for now, let's continue with the time-honored tradition of the music swell and fade out. Before we get to Rick's story, we need to discuss how you can financially support this podcast. Go to your browser of choice, type in transformationthursday.com, and that will bring you to our Patreon page. Once there, you can subscribe and support us financially, and patron donations start at only $1 a month. And already before we've even published our first podcast, we've had four wonderful patrons become patrons on our Patreon page, and the latest one is Andrew K. In addition to supporting us on Patreon, we will also be starting to provide patron-only content, and already Amy has posted videos for our patrons on Patreon, so you can see the fits and starts we had to work through to get this podcast started. We'll be right back with our interview with Rick Starpoli. I'm very excited to have my friend Rick Starpoli with us for this show. Rick, according to your webpage, rickstarpoli.com, you describe yourself as, quote, an unhandled exception occurred during the execution of the current web request. Please review the stack trace for more information about the error and where it originated on the code. Wow, those are some pretty fancy words, Rick. Yeah. Maybe you could dumb it down for us everyday folk? Yeah, we had, we had a copywriter work on that, uh, and we came, we landed on that language. I just want to let you know, after weeks of working, Tiffany, my wife, produced that language, uh, and it actually cost about 15 grand. Wow, that's, that's exceptional, Rick. Yeah. That's actually not really where people can find out about you. I know that for true. But that's, that's uh, I just, I went there to write something about you, and that's what popped up. And I said, if, if that uh -huh. doesn't describe my friend Rick, I don't know what does. <laughs> Wow, that hurts. So, so tell us. Well, well, first, tell us a little bit about ourselves. Can if, if, uh, your yeah. your your who you are? Your yeah. your I was going to say bathroom pitch. How about the elevator pitch instead? Gets a little bit better. <laughs> so, uh, I'm I'm a former attorney, and we can talk about the uh, about that at some point. Uh, but right now, what I do is I mainly am in film and video production, um, and I work with my wife Tiffany out of our home office slash studio. Uh, that's sort of one of my lives, and then another life is as a voiceover actor and also a stage and commercial actor. 
uh, and then another life is as a trainer. So I kind of uh, I mix it up. It's a portfolio life. Right? What kind of trainer are you? Uh, uh, the, uh, for probably most of the last 10 or 12 years, I've been a corporate trainer. So I train anything that I'm told to train. Ah, so I I've see. trained software programs. I've trained soft skills, et cetera. Yeah. Very, very cool. I first met you as the commercial actor. Yeah. Yep. And I've been calling you an incorrect last name for most of our relationship. Uh, incorrect is a strong word. It actually is just not how I say it. Well, yeah. It, if you look at his name, it would be Rick Staropoli, which is what I've been saying. But I've found out recently yeah. that it is actually Rick Starpoli. Just by pronunciation. But just you, by it, pronunciation. It, exactly. And if you ask my aunt, it's totally Staropoli. That's that's always good to know. But yeah, yeah I remember. Do you remember the first thing that we worked on together? I don't. I was it the. I think it was like the used car commercial in, oh uh, in like a big. And then we did one where we drove out to the boonies someplace to talk about pole Tractors barns or something. Oh, pole, pole barns. That's right. Pole barns. That's right. Oh, that was creepy. Yeah, that really was. And we were like, we were on the road for hours. It was three one five country. Nothing against. Nothing against. Uh, the, you know that particular the, part of the country. But what I felt out of my element. Huh? Yeah, hey, it, it was well, just I real hard to get there. Is all. I don't think a lot of our listeners are going to understand. What is 315 country? Oh, fair enough. So, yeah. So, I forget it's a national show. So, 315 is the area code for uh, just to the east of Rochester. It actually encompasses Syracuse, which is a fine city. Yep. But from a Rochester perspective, 315 is the line you hit when you go about 20 miles east of Rochester and realize that you're lost. I, <laughs> I, I, have, done, I have done shows in the 315 comedy shows and places like that. And they say, how do you get there? And I would say, drive until you think you have left all civilization behind and then make a left. <laughs> it's a place, it's where the place where GPS do not work anymore. Oh, oh yeah, that's so true. But I'm, 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 I'm listening to you describe these things and I hear the lawyer in you and you're, mm. you know, like Syracuse is in the 315 and it's a fine yeah, city. Yeah, so, yeah. so how, and the politicians. Yes, yeah. yeah. So your, your, your pre, your pre acting background mm. was in criminal law. Originally, yeah. So I went to UB Law. I, I did uh, three plus years at the uh, at the uh, public defender's office in Rochester. Mm -hmm. um, and if I had stayed there, I probably would still be an attorney right now. Like I, I really loved it. I felt like I was doing good work. Um, and then I was picturing going into politics. And so I thought, eh, not many people win running from the public defender's office. So I probably should, you know, expand my horizons. And so I left and went to general practice. And next thing you know, I was on five different not-for-profit boards. I was handing out my card every chance I could. I was at every happy hour and I was, you know, sliding into a world that wasn't good for me psychologically. So uh -huh. that was uh, around 2006, 2005 is really when it started going downhill. Like, were you always interested in acting? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so I took off for most of my, you know, my 20s and into my early 30s, I actually took off from acting. I, I didn't touch it. And then realized right around 2003, 2004 that I, I really, I, oh, adults do that. That's right. You know, like I can be an adult and also act. Wow. Yeah. So why get involved with law in the first place then? Good call. Um, yeah. So when I was at undergrad at Boston College, I was I was heading straight for being a professor. I loved English, and I was that's that was my focus. And I took off a year to study for the GRE, and I worked in a public library locally, um, uh, the downtown public library. And I went to a conference on Attica twenty five years later, 
in, in Buffalo. Yeah. And on the drive back, talking with, you know, three or four other people in the car, I knew that I was going to become an attorney. I, I simply made the decision on the drive back that being an English professor can affect those in front of you, but being an attorney might be more important. So not just an attorney, but a public defender? Specifically, I was picturing being a public defender, yeah. Um, like that, like I knew I would land in the public defender job that I landed in three and a half years later. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a pretty fantastic, um, vision to have. Yeah. Oh, it was beautiful. Yeah. It really was. So was, was it mostly, um, so what, so what made you leave? I think you touched on this again, but if you could expand a little bit on what made you leave the public defender's office. Yeah. So, um, uh, being a public defender, I don't know if you know this, but it's true that a lot of people in the public defender's office are assumed to be quite liberal, quite, well, uh, they're perceived to be soft on crime, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're perceived to be biased in favor of the defendant, et cetera. And therefore, you know, running for, at that point, I was picturing Monroe County legislature type positions. Uh, it's really hard to run from that position and win. Um, and I like winning. So I figured, let me, let me, you know, if I leave and become a general practitioner, oh, there we go. I have criminal experience, but I'm no longer in that world. Eh, Maybe I can get involved as an elected official. So was it that, that part of the transformation from public defender to that, that sort of law that it, uh, the, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounded to me like you kind of soured on the entire process at that point. Of, of what you needed to do to actually get into politics from yeah. from that point it was a, it was a three year process yeah so I stayed very involved in politics I was doing okay and it wasn't it, it was really over a period of three years after leaving the public defender's office which I still say is the best job I ever had um, you know it, it was a path of you know realizing oh wow now I'm in positions where I'm using an illicit drug and I'm next thing you know I'm drinking tons and, you know, just kind of only worried about the bottom line, only worried about bringing in business. And wow, this is what it's about. Just, just to clarify, that's your fa- that was you spinning where you were forward or was that what? Was no, 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 that's what happened. Okay. Yeah. That, that's what happened in those three years. I went from being just a solid, like, you know, kind of, uh, idealist and, and, you know, ready to, you know, work on any campaign and, and, and whatever. And, and it, and it became, oh God, I'm just now busy trying to make money at right. my job, <laughs> you know? Uh, and private practice isn't all it's cracked up to be. And politics, as it turns out is, uh, you know, relatively hard game. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, so. it's, it's pretty cutthroat from what I've seen. Yeah. You're still politically active though. I know that about you. You were still very much a, uh, mm-hmm. a, a person who was involved in a lot of social, causes. Um, mm. Do you want to, yeah. I know that what, I know there's, I know we've gone to a couple of events together. So yeah. what are some of the things that you're interested in now? Yeah. For the most part, it's supporting other people's causes, right? So it's, uh, I, I go to various functions that, because I'm privileged. I, I, I have some money to be able to go to an event and buy a table or something like that. So, so I, I, I go to events like the human rights, human rights commission. Um, you know, the, so it's mostly supporting, Around the 2016 election, though, I kind of got amped up uh, in in the aftermath of that and uh, started, uh, along with a couple other friends of mine, a group called uh, Unified Progressives. And uh, that's a group that uh, essentially is trying to figure out how to amplify the voices of those who are, um, 
uh, in need of a voice at this point. So what kind of margin? So you, you, said, you know, people that need a voice. So you mentioned human rights campaign. What other what other communities or marginalized groups are you finding that need some voices? Uh, I'll be very honest. Uh, right now, um, I'm not very actively involved in much, except from the standpoint of being a participant. So, for example, um, uh, a friend of mine, Scott Lancer, and I started a, a Facebook page that is for the sole purpose of posting. It's called Rochester, New York Peaceful Assemblies, and it is for the sole purpose of posting when there are events happening um, that people may want to go and, you know, lend their voice to. Um, and that was also in the aftermath of that one election. And so, you know, it is, if I hear about a rally, you know, or that people send me notices about rallies, about, you know, peaceful gatherings, uh, I, I post about it in that way. So, so it's amplifying a voice. That's the main thing we try to do. We will put a link to that that Facebook page on our patron page so that people can then follow along on that. And it's, it's, it sounds like you're looking for a peaceful way to involve yourself in, uh, act activism. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I actually I, don't. Yeah. A I, thoughtful way. Thoughtful. Yes. Especially, and, and there's a lot of talking, um, in among my group of friends, uh, about, you know, the best way to do it. And, uh, essentially, <laughs> To a person, uh, we are simply saying uh, all you can do is go to events, go and participate. Unless you're the one who's organizing them, great. But it's mostly going to and supporting and being, you know, adding mass to an event uh, is about what we can do right now. That's cool. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that moment when you decided you wanted to be an actor. You went from a position where you were making some money. Uh, to a position where there's, especially when you're starting out, not a lot of money to be made. I mean, <laughs> uh, how did how did that how did that play out with the family? Oh, this is a fun story, Penny. I can't believe you don't know this story. All right, and it's true. I, I don't think I've told you. Um, I w because it ended up being well publicized at the time. <laughs> so I so I was an attorney, and I was on a downward spiral. I had been diagnosed with MS. Uh, multiple sclerosis in 2004 and never really dealt with it. I essentially was self-medicating, you know, just I, I was an unhappy person in a marriage that wasn't really doing anything for me. And um, essentially, fast forward about two years, a slow slide, I realized that um, the depression was too much. Um, I, the marriage ended. I was trying to quit everything. I was trying to quit. All right, I'm on these five or six different not-for-profit boards. I'll quit that one. Maybe if I have less to do. All right, I'll quit that one. Maybe. No, that didn't work. So trying to pare down what I was doing, none of it was working. And it's because I was depressed. Um, so I left my job, finally. I actually quit the firm I was working for, having no plan whatsoever. Um, and... Uh, Sort of picked up a couple acting gigs that that summer, and uh, and that fall I actually was picked up by Jiva to do a show, um, and I was very excited about it. I was a supporting character, um, and I ended up on the night before opening night, so the final preview night, I went home and attempted suicide. Um, all of a sudden, it was out for me. It, was, it truly was something I hadn't been considering. I hadn't whatever. Um, and, uh, and that was officially, I guess, what you call rock bottom. And uh, so starting from there, you know, I, if I had gotten a job 
mowing lawns the next day, my, my family would have been ecstatic. Like anything was a success from that point on. I was unemployed. I had just burned a bridge at the best theater in Rochester by not showing up for opening night. And I, so I was, I was at zero. And uh, so I started climbing back up from there. What were some of the things that you did to climb? Uh, did, who, did you go into counseling? Did you uh, engage into any sort of spiritual practice? Uh, what was, what yeah. was your path? It was a combination of several things. Definitely medication um, was, we thought, maybe helping, but I was actually on a medication when I attempted suicide. So it was, I had just started a new one like a month before. So theoretically, that was a contributing factor to the problem. Um, but so, yeah, we switched. We found me a different cocktail. Um, I had been in counseling throughout and continued with it, and I was going in crisis mode three times a week. And um, But a lot of it's le- leaning on family. I'm, you know, uh, I'm one of six, ki- six kids, all of whom lived in Rochester at the time. All of, w- uh, you know, I've got 11 nibblings, which is the gender neutral term for nieces and nephews. Um, you know, they, they all live in Rochester at the time, you know, it was, I was surrounded. Um, so it's, yeah, it's surrounding myself with love and, um, and then counseling and medication. Yeah. When did you, did you feel at any point that, yeah, I've turned a corner and I'm going to make it during that time? Was there anything, uh, an event or anything at all that made you go, okay, this is, I'm, I'm going to make it. And this is the, this is the path that I want to take. Uh, that's a really that's a really good question. Um, so a few months after I was hospitalized, it, it was um, I thought I had hit rock bottom, but I was still going out and finding ways to get in trouble, uh, living on my own in an apartment after a you know a marriage that ended, and um, and so I I had a DWI, and I realized oh this is my new rock bottom. And so it was actually December 27th of 2007 is the time that I kind of mark my, you know, okay, that was... Uh, yeah, that was the, the first right one was what's known as the dead cat bounce. Yes, exactly. Right. The, and the, I was, <laughs> the, dead, the dead cat bounce of recovery. You think you're there, but no, that's a little nope. farther to go. Exactly. And I'm sorry, it was actually 2006. I have to correct that. Oh, well, thank, uh, uh, thank you. It, it matters that. because by December... Of 2007, I met my current wife. So I just, yeah. want, I just want to clarify. Yeah. How much did that change your life and how did you meet her? Oh, God, we got so lucky. So I spent basically all of 2007 becoming a new human being, you mm-hmm. know, and, uh, and it took a lot of setting aside the ego um, and being okay with being single. That was another thing. I kind of thought that I had to dive into something and, you know, might define myself based on a relationship. And so there was a lot of just kind of, oh, okay, I cannot go out every, you know, <laughs> evening, much less every weekday or, you know. Um, so uh, it, it was a slow, 2007 was just kind of, you know, becoming um, solidified because if I had met her at the wrong time, it would have been a waste. Um, and then December 21st of 2007, I went to an event that I really wish still existed in Rochester called the George Bailey 5K. And that was, George Bailey was in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. 
I don't know if you know it, um, but it is... Uh, Merry Christmas, you dusty old saving buildings and loan. <laughs> that's exactly it. That's, that's, my George, that's my George Bailey imitation. That because, was spectacular. Thank you so much. You lie like a rug, but that's yes. very nice of you to hear that. Are you so, going to cut in the actual George Bailey sound when you, when you edit this? I, I might do that. <laughs> I might, if I, if I find it. <laughs> that would be awesome. Merry Christmas, you wonderful building and loan. Yeah, so, so, you did the five, so you're at the 5K. Yeah. yeah, it's actually not a 5K. It's a 1K. They just call it a 5K. Basically, it's a bunch of people gather at Mech's restaurant, uh, you know, God rest its soul, um, and, and, and they pay their 15 bucks and get the George Bailey marathon number on their chest. And most of the people are dressed in costume from the movie, and all of the money goes to charity and basically a couple, three drinks, and then you run through the streets from there to Java Joe's uh, it, it, on the darkest day of the year, December 21st, you know, yelling, Merry Christmas, you old five and dime, and, you know, uh, Merry Christmas, Ernie. Uh, and yeah, that, that audio has to go in. Merry Christmas, movie house! Merry Christmas, Emporium! Oh, yeah, <laughs> it definitely does, uh, because that's what we were doing. And, and we would stop every few houses and every every few buildings and sing Christmas carols and whatever. So I met her at that event. Wow. And I was dressed as George, and she was dressed as Mary. So. Oh, my gosh, that is amazing. Yeah, yeah it was good stuff. So, oh, hence the name Granville House Media, our company. The old Granville House is the house that they throw the you know rock through and break the window, and they end up buying it and refurbishing it. Wow. So yeah. that that's amazing. That's the first thing we mentioned that you, that's that's the name of your company is Granville House Media. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Granville House Media is our my company with Tiffany. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. So you mentioned a little bit before meeting your wife, you know, what are those things you do though? How do you how do you keep yourself from going out all the time and how do you how do you make that transition from you know that low point and mm. not continuing to dig and dig and dig? So, I mean, obviously, it's going to vary by the person, but I can tell bit, you, yeah, yeah. yeah, but I can tell you what I did. I, it, for me, it was a combination of two things. One is being around great people. So I cut some ties, and I spent much of my time when I was outside of the apartment. I spent much of most of my time with family um, because them I trust, and, and they know me. They know my problems. They know my proclivities. They, you know, they're so. That was number one. And did I say there were two things? Because I can't yeah. remember the second one. Um, it was a combination of, of that and, uh, and honestly, um, medication. Medication, okay. Yeah, for, for me. And, and obviously, that's so personal um, to each person. But uh, it worked. How hard was it to open up to family at some points? I'm lucky that I come from a family that kind of, you know, we had been through some crisis before, but also we, we were very much in touch with with our emotions and, and open, I, I would say the number one thing for me was letting go of ego um, and being vulnerable, being okay with, you know what? I have no idea how they're gonna respond, but right now, my success today, my only success today would be just being honest. Like that would be a banner day, you know? <laughs> because I had reached such a low point um, and I was so desperate to not be there again. Um, yeah. Yeah, that that is an amazing. So, you and Tiffany were you romantic partners before you became business partners? Did they kind of meld into each other. How did that happen? 
Yeah, uh, as it happened, I met her right when she was just at the very end of her career. She didn't know it yet, but she was at the end of her time with Jay Advertising. Uh, they were, they went through about four downsizings, like right in a row, mm-hmm. uh, over a period of a couple of years. And Tiffany's job was she uh, was a producer at Jay Advertising, um, so she was producing things like you know the Buick commercials with Tiger Woods. She was co-producer on that, you know. It, so uh, um, she was doing some, some great stuff and. Jay Advertising had to lay off some people as they lost some accounts, and we just didn't realize it. So when I met her, no, we didn't picture working together. And then the second she lost her job, uh, uh, two and a half months later, I said, okay, well, then will you work with me? You know, kind of like we really have a lot we could do together, and um, and that worked. She actually trusted, and she still points to that as a kind of a shockingly daring thing for her to do. Um, she never would have done it, um, but I wanted her as a partner. So. Right. so you talked about the fact that you have MS. Are you still, you're, you're I don't know if you're in remission or it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't present itself much yeah. apparently in, in your day-to-day activities. Yeah. Uh, um, so uh, it turns out that back in the 80s, these, the, what they used to treat MS was chemo. Mm-hmm. So when I was diagnosed with cancer in 2008, um, it was Hodgkin's lymphoma, very, very curable, like 90% cure rate when you catch it when they did. Um, uh, they told me, they said, chemo is uh, you know, probably going to put your MS into some sort of a, a, you know, they didn't use the term remission, but like a, they would put it to sleep for a little while. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know how long. And here it is 11 years later, and I've probably had... I don't know, several days total of actual feeling like I have MS. Okay, here's here's the thing about that. <laughs> this is how far you dropped. You you dropped so far that the fact that you have cancer, it seems to be like a back... <laughs> oh, yeah, then I had the cancer. That was, just, yeah, that was nothing. Like, yeah, I know. <laughs> Tiffany and I joked about that because before we... I mean, before we met, I had already been in the hospital for, you know, a suicide attempt and, and, and depression. Uh, I have, you know, I had MS. There were several things that I disclosed literally in the first weekend we met. And she, <laughs> she was like, what were you trying? I said, I just wanted to get it all out there. I don't know. What do I, uh, maybe, maybe you have an issue with whatever. Yeah, so, but, so I got it all out there. And then within three weeks of getting married, we found out I had cancer. Yeah. yeah that's, I think that they call that putting your foot, putting your worst foot forward. That's, 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 <laughs> seriously, that's, they, they talk about that as a dating technique. It's like, yeah, these are all the things about me that I really don't want to tell you. Smart. Talk about putting your ego aside at this and this yeah. and this and this. If you can get past that, then we have a chance <laughs> yeah. to be, be, be together. <laughs> so it's true. Yep. Yeah, so you had cancer, but then also Tiffany yeah. had cancer and her cancer story is not nowhere near as dismissive as yours no no hers was yeah hers was stage four colon cancer which has something like uh you know an 85 percent uh failure rate um i don't know how you want to put it i would i would love to talk to her about and get her on the show and talk to her about this what i'm interested in is how did that change your relationship with her you you know the the cancer you know the the spouse of the cancer patient how did that change your life yeah, it was actually um, very, very strange, but probably those were the best days of our marriage. Um, what I do well as a caregiver, uh, I thrive in that, and uh, she did really well as a, a patient. 
um, and ended up becoming, you know, the, the, she the cancer a, dancer, the cancer dancer. She became a, a brief phenomenon on, on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. She, it was, um, we, we ended up, she was glowing, uh, with the, with this just positivity of, uh, you know, if I'm going to get through this, it's going to be positivity. So, uh, that also kind of landed in our marriage, right? So next thing you know, I'm living with this ridiculously positive woman who just couldn't think of anything except, um, you know, our lives were about to get better. You know, it, it, it was it was pretty amazing. So she made it very easy. And I'm just a natural born caregiver. Um, so, so it worked out well. I, I'm relatively selfless. So it worked out well. So moving forward from there, is it still all positivity on, on your parts. I mean, I now, not, not to say that there aren't, there isn't bad shit happening, but your attitude towards your life, is that still on that same sort of positivity, uh, arc that you, that hmm. you had during the cancer, during her cancer? No, no. And that's been actually the, the hardest transition. Um, uh, that's been the hardest transition of, of our marriage is, um, Tiffany's depression, which she had dealt with in the past, came back with a vengeance after uh, after cancer. So um, all of a sudden, when you'd think that she'd be in the best mood possible because she has a she's in remission, yay! And uh, as it turns out, dealing with cancer was um, a cause. It was a mission. It was a purpose. And the second she lost that, um, she lost something. Yeah, almost so. like a postpartum. Yeah. That's actually not a bad comparison, though I've never had postpartum. No, I, I, I haven't either, but I've, I've seen and I've dealt with it. Yeah. But, but how many people would come up in that situation and say, well, you should be happy? Hmm. And, and how, do, and how, you know, if you, did, you, did, she, did you or her have any friends or family that would say that to you? And how do you, how do you deal with that? Because that's hmm. just a pure, that's a pure slap in the face. Yeah. Well, well yeah, the problem is when I say it. Oh, to her. <laughs> like, that's the thing. At right? least you recognize it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. No, you're exactly right. Like, that's everyone's, that would be everyone's attitude. And, and the good news is most people, you know, it's a passing thing, right? They say it and it may affect Tiffany a little bit, but then they move on. When I say it, that's part of our marriage now. You know, I say, how is it that you can possibly be not happy right now? You know, you just found out that life is always this close to ending and how can you not be happy and cherishing this particular moment? Um, that's been a struggle ever since, you know, that's, it's, it's the number one thing in our marriage. Wow. Yeah. Um, and ours is a pretty simple marriage by comparison. Trust me, I'm not suggesting it's a, it's a real hardship, but it's a thing. Uh, how, what do you mean by a simple marriage? We don't, I mean, I know it sounds like we've dealt with quite a bit, um, yeah, but, I mean, mm, yeah, that, that, that of, of all the, of all the adjectives to use to describe <laughs> what you've just talked about for the last 20 minutes, yeah, simple, simple would not, yeah. simple uh, would not uh, be uh. the one that word. So, but the, the yeah. fact that you look at it that way really sh yeah. shows an, a very interesting view on life. And I'd like to hear more about why yeah. that, that was the word you used. Well, I mean, maybe that's the segue to the next segment at some point, but, but for me, it's just, we are very privileged. Um, I, I entered cancer knowing um, that I was going to be well taken care of um, because of A, having an amazing family, B, having great insurance, C, having caught it early, whatever, right? Um, having, having jobs that let us have time off and let us whatever. And then Tiffany, as soon as she had cancer, it was a question of, you know, um, immediately feeling 
privileged with our coverage, knowing that we had a max, you know, a max out of pocket. We could, you know, it, it, you know, people came together and did fundraisers for it, all this stuff. So those don't seem like hardships to me because I, I see them as still just part of a privilege, pr privileged life. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I am a white male in his forties, straight, uh, married, uh, you know, like, uh, relatively well off, right? Yeah. All of these things. Yeah, you were the you could be the ultimate MAGA guy. <laughs> exactly. How do you know oh. I'm not? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We actually do take a picture during this because I don't know if they can see my MAGA hat. <laughs> that's, I don't know. Make America gay again. Yay. Wait. That, well, no, that, no, no, no. That, <laughs> swing and a miss there too, Amy. Sorry. <laughs> so anyway, I just feel very privileged. And so I think of it as a relatively simple marriage, It, you know. Come on, how many moving parts do we have when it comes to, you know, we don't have kids. We don't have, um, we have, don't have serious concerns about finances. We don't have crazy debt hanging over our heads. We have great health insurance. We have great family. What are you going to do? Be Enjoy. thankful. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. 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 And so what, you know, what is your takeaway for from from the life that you've lived so far, what are hmm. if, if you were, if, if someone was to ask you like I'm asking you right now, what pearls of wisdom could you impart to people who are dealing with health issues and mental health issues hmm. and uh, realizing they're in the wrong spot in the wrong job in the wrong place in their life? Hmm. What could you say to them that would you know the, the caretaker in you? How would you take care of them? What, what? Okay, now you're speaking to me. <laughs> uh, I know you. There we go. There yeah. we go. I'm going to be very selfish here. I love it. Um, yeah, it is. Um, it, all right. Step one is admitting you have a problem. Uh, no, step one it really is an awareness that you are in the wrong place. And that, that took me a long time. Um, I, was, I was probably an attorney for uh, two years past when I knew that it wasn't good for me. Um, I mean, emotionally, it wasn't good for me. It wasn't, uh, nothing was working well. Um, I didn't admit I had depression until well after I was already self-medicating. And, and so step one is admitting you have a problem, yeah. um, you know, and, uh, but it really is a question of letting go of the ego. For me, that's just, uh, I was just saying this to my, a nibbling of mine is having issues, um, as a teenager and is, is struggling through them, um, and realizing that she needs to a recognize, a um, a, a rock bottom. Uh, that she's at right now, and um, B, um, let go of the ego. And um, as soon as you're able to do that, as soon as you're able to just simply say, "Yeah, I'm. I am not at all perfect. Like I am just some, just some person trying to live a life." Um, as soon as you're able to do that, and uh, uh, everything opens up. You know, everything opened up for me. It was a slow climb back, but I didn't care at that point if it was slow. I knew it was upward progress. I knew that I was, you know, that was day number eight without having been an idiot. You know, like <laughs> that was, I, Penny, you're working on day number two now? Are you kidding? You know, I, <laughs> I'm i still working on day number one. You yeah, know, exactly. it's like, the reason why we don't have, reason why we don't have coins is none of us ever make it a day. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. The, the ego's so hard, though. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look in, because in our society, in the way we look at things, the houses, the cars, everything mm -hmm. comes with the money that you need for a modern life. 
Yep. And taking that next step saying, okay, I might not know when my next paycheck is coming. Yeah, exactly. It, it really is. Uh, uh, it, it's, um, there's a confidence that, that is required, a confidence that I'm doing what I need to do. And as long as that's true, I can't care about what other people think. I can't. I'm doing exactly what I need to do for me right now. I mean, I can only imagine, we've only talked about my transition today, but both of you have been through yeah. transitions to, you know, I don't know how long it's been, et cetera. But um, I can only imagine that part of that ego, letting go of the ego is saying, I have to get used to the fact that in public, there are going to be those who look at me differently. Yeah, it, you know? and, and you talk about the ego. That's the thing about uh, male privilege in our society right now, that, <laughs> that you, are, you are right in the middle of it. You recognize yeah. it. And one of the, my, my theory is one of the issues that people have with trans women is that we are, in their eyes, willingly giving up that position. <laughs> exactly. You know, to, exactly. to and if and if you know, and and that is and that is one of the things that is very off-putting to an awful lot of people is that they look at us and they see, they see they don't see women they see guys who are giving something up. That's fascinating. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, you know, in fun. my case, you know, I come from a Mormon religion background, hmm. very patriarchal. Uh, I, you know, father. Two wonderful daughters. One of them's here sitting with us in the studio right now. Yay, She's Clarissa. Yay yeah. for Clarissa. <laughs> and, you know, insurance agent, volunteer firefighter, um, mm. hockey official. I mean, these are all very male-dominated areas. Yeah. And there's probably going to be a few of them that I'm going to need to walk away from mm. um, just because of time and maybe one of them because of culture. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask? I'm sorry. I don't even know uh, where you are in sort of in sort of the public transition. Okay. Public transition. I've been full time for going on full four weeks. Oh, I didn't realize that it was that. I've been socially. Fresh, I guess. I've been socially transitioning since March of 2017. Wow. Um, but then medically started transitioning last year in July, mm. and full time earlier this month. Wow. What was the what was so the moment that cost that, that you consider your full time? For me, my full time was when I walked into work as Penny. Same. That's interesting. That's mm. such an interesting mm. thing. I wonder how many other trans people you could talk to where that is the line. It's like when when you're talking about the money. Yeah, mm. because it, I mean, because <laughs> you can hide from it when you're when you're not being yourself for eight plus hours a day. You know, you're still yeah. very part time and, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm still dealing with the situation where I walked into it. I, I go out and I solicit referrals from other insurance agents who can't write the type of business I can write. Mm. I walked in today and the guy looks at me, he's like, oh, oh, uh, yeah. I'm like, yeah. And he was with a customer. So yeah. I'm like, okay, just read my business card, shoot me an email. We'll talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Would you prefer to do this without having to look at me? Yeah. yeah. Is yeah. that? Yeah. He, yeah. But he was, just, but he was totally out, he caught off guard. So yeah, I mean, yeah, and he yeah. was with a client. So I just didn't get time to, you know, to say, Hey, this is who I am. I've been dealing with this my whole life. You know, and we were talking a little bit before as well, my situation, I'm good at my job, but the passion isn't there. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, how long do you hold on to that without passion? Sure, absolutely. Because because I have great flexibility in my schedule. I get great benefits. I'm treated very well by my employer. But I just wake up and I go, eh. 
Yeah. It's got to be particularly tough, I imagine, considering the fact that it sounds as though they've supported you through your transition. I mean, as you best know, as they could. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that's that's not nothing. No. Uh, you know, I mean, nowadays, hopefully it's more normal, uh, you know, for companies to actually be cool uh, and actually be helpful. Um, mm-hmm. But I imagine it's not nothing. You know? Yeah. My boss, as long as you can sell insurance, I don't care how you dress. And that's right. a little bit of a loyalty thing, right? That, yeah. that kind of, I don't know if you're tempted to reciprocate, but it's no, not like- it's. But then I look at it and go, okay, so what else can I do at age 47 and a half that makes me this kind of money and affords me the freedom and flexibility? That, and you mm-hmm. look out in the corporate world, and the only thing I can think of right now is there's nothing else out there, but how can I bring my advocacy for and through what I do in comedy, media appearances, and everything else, how can, how can I tie those two <coughs> worlds together? How can I bring insurance mm-hmm. into my advocacy world or vice versa? Yeah, yeah, fascinating. As as my old Russian used to, teacher used to say, everything in life is a trade-off. And at it some is. point, you're going to have to figure out what you're going to give up and what you're going to keep. I'm going to keep Clarissa. That's a, yeah, that's that's a good, well, <laughs> you don't, you're not, you really don't. You're just renting her because she's going to, you know, in, a, in about, what, six, seven more years, she's she's going to, the, the lease is up and she's going to be out on her own. Yeah, the yeah. Uh, my oldest is off to college in two weeks. Yeah, mm. that's 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 a fun heartbreak, right? So let you know, legally, you have to keep Clarissa. I just want to point Look, that out. Okay, you le- really legally. don't have a choice. But for, for now, yes, for <laughs> now. Saying. Yeah, for I'm now. gonna say yeah. But that, for but, the benefit of our audience, you should see the <laughs> smile on my daughter's face, knowing that I can't get rid of her. <laughs> I love it. I think it's a look of relief more than anything else. Rick, yeah. we, I, I'm having so much fun talking to you, but we have another segment that we're going to be talking about allyship and mm. privilege, yeah. and we would love it if you would stick around for that. I'd be happy to. I, in fact, I'd be privileged. I see see what you did there. That's almost funny. Thanks for the softball. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rick. We uh, (laughs) really appreciate it. We're going to take a real quick break right here, and we'll be back with more talk about transitions and transformations right after this. Today's episode is brought to you by... Patriots! Yes, we're talking about those God-fearing souls who just adore the good old U.S. of A., or at least those parts that have the red state white people and only acknowledge the blue because it's legally required. I'm sure they would love to replace the background of the stars with some other color, but black would make it worse. The set of patriots we're talking about are the ones who, as have been noted by others, love this country like a three-year-old loves its mommy, desperately and uncritically. These are the ones who refer to history without learning from it, who begin every conversation regarding social inequity with these four words. Why don't they just... And refute every discussion of privilege with these six words. If I'm privileged, why ain't I rich? Yes, we're talking about dude bro patriotism, the patriotism of bullying and shouting down. Here's hoping that someday you'll close your mouths and open your hearts, but for now we're not counting on it because you put the dude in Yankee Doodle. And we're back. Welcome to Transformation Thursday. I'm Penny Sterling and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Amy Stevens, still with the pronouns she, her as well. And also with us is... Rick Starpoli, he, him. There we go. Starpoli, not Staropoli, like some people like to say. Like his aunt. <laughs> and and also <laughs> like me. So we are talking about privilege and allyship in this segment. And I want to 
talk about it because it is very, very obvious in my life that I had this amazing change in, in, in privilege. I went from being the most privileged poor person that you could be, which would be an older white male, to the least privileged white person that I could be, which would be a, an older transgender woman. So I, I noticed in my life almost immediately the, the differences in the way I was treated and, uh, and, and, and related to in my life. Uh, the, one, of the, one of the most obvious ones was when I would go to a bar. And, you know, you ever go to a crowded bar and uh, when you, you probably saw like you go into the bar and you work your way to the to the front and, you know, you have your you have your money or your credit card in your hand. And you're waiting to be waited on and you would get the chin, you know, like like the bartender may be working some, but they look over, and make eye contact and they just jut their chin at you like, yeah, I see you. I, I and a lot of times I don't get the chin anymore. Hmm. I don't see that. That's it, it's the little things like that. The 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 lack of you know you were just telling I'd, I'd love tell me the story about when you uh, were at the the conference Amy. So back in the fall of 2017, I was still exploring my gender and one and I had this conference in New York City where nobody was going to know me. It was just going to be me in New York City for two and a half three days, and my counselor's like, if you have this opportunity to explore your gender. Your wife has told you that you need to figure this out. It's time for you to figure it out. And you need to go to New York City and spend some time near Amy. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. So I worked up the guts and got myself down to New York City uh, through cars and trains. And you know the deal. And got to the first day of the meeting. We're sitting there. And we're, we're in a classroom setting going through, the, going through our day. And I was... It was the first time I was in a business setting as Amy. And I raised my hand, ignored. Finally, I kept, I had a point to make it in a conversation. Finally, he reluctantly called on me, the instructor, and then I made my point. He kind of like blew it off. But then a couple minutes later, a guy made the same point and they went off on a tangent on it for, you know, 10, 15 minutes as sometimes happens in meetings and conferences and conversations like that. And You've heard my stand-up, and I've, I've actually made a little joke about that, you know, talking about losing that privilege, how I get to set up meetings now, be ignored in them, the guys have the great ideas, and then I get to clean up. So that that is really real, and I realized that my first meeting as Amy. Yeah. Hmm. It was instantaneous. Right. So, Rick, you have you are a, as you mentioned, have... have already said you are a heterosexual cisgender married man mm -hmm. and you uh, do something that not a lot of married cisgender heterosexual men do and that is acknowledge privilege yeah how yeah. hard was that for you to do um oh well, it's been yeah it's been um years of of slowly acknowledging privilege i mean first of all i i have to thank everyone in the world of um uh, in the world that I immerse myself in, uh, Impact Interactive Theater, which is a wonderful group I work with, um, you know, it, it, having friends like you, Penny, uh, to, to bring awareness to, because having privilege only matters in relation to those who have less privilege. Um, so, so I, I wouldn't have realized that I had privilege. I wouldn't have realized my own, uh, you know, the definition of who I am, except in relation to other people. 
And so it's only been in the last few years that I've had to come to terms with it. And uh, in a couple of very specific ways that I could get into at some point, but um, with regard to race in particular, uh, but certainly as a, as a uh, cisgender, um, you know, straight male in, in this society, I mean, come on, who also makes enough to not have to, you know, be below the poverty level and, you know, just all of the things I have going for me. It's, uh, um, yeah, it's kind of astounding. Um, yeah. yeah. You talk, you bring, you, you mentioned race real quick and, you know, over the last few years, how does black lives matter play into this? You know, how does, I mean, I think for me, that was a true, I was, I was still in the closet at that point. So that was a real slap in the face for me. Mm. And so, and, you know, hearing that, those conversations, you know, make me realize of, I've never been pulled over for being white. Yeah. Not once. Or probably at a store. You probably haven't been targeted as a potential shoplifter just based on your you know, yeah. skin color. Yeah. Yeah. That to me, my definition of privilege, like my, my, my thumbnail sketch definition of privilege is privilege is the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. In every situation. Yeah. Uh, I've, I heard a, uh, a I, I don't want to tell the story. Uh, because it's not mine to, to tell. I don't want to attribute about about a a man who told this hilarious story about you know when he was seventeen year old. Seven, he was a seventeen year old going out and doing something drunk and stupid with all of his friends, including like having somebody like in the trunk and being pulled over by the cops and mm-hmm. the, because they needed some of the trunk because they didn't have any more room in the car that sort of thing. Well, that's just typical kids. That just, that just a bunch of the boy and you know and and then. Then he finished it up and said, you know, is there any doubt that if I was black, that mm. this would have ended the way it did? Mm-hmm. And there was none. There was, a, there was like one black person in the audience and, they, and, and, and he shouted out, hell no. Yeah. Because that's not how it goes. And that awareness that we uh, as white people, even, even as transgender white people, have it, you know, have a certain degree of of, of, of a benefit of the doubt in, in almost every situation. We have a, we have a society that was built to accommodate us. Right. And it's good. It's frankly, Amy, it's good to hear you say, you know, you brought it up first, just kind of recognizing your own privilege, despite the fact that as you know, Penny, you described how theoretically yeah. it's strike against according to society and strike against and yeah. strike against. Well, you still have one of the major strikes. <laughs> you know, yeah. One of the major ones. Yeah. In your I, I recognize yeah. I, I am like, yeah, I am the, the, the least privileged white person I can be, but I'm still white. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I've had, I had a Hispanic trans friend of mine say, you know, I was concerned about crossing the border and she was like, well, you're still white at least. I'm yeah. Like, yeah. And, and that's something that, if we, you know, we don't. And last night I was at a bar for an open mic and I was listening in on a conversation between two black comedians. And one of the things they were talking about is how they change themselves for their audience. If mm. it's a black or if it's a white audience. And finally, I had to pipe in and say, you know what? I think I think white people need to hear from you as you are. <laughs> and I know from at least the circles I run in now I appreciate the realness of black culture versus the sanitized versions we've got through the generations. The Cosby show, different strokes and Mm -hmm. all these really, (laughs) even though they're black families, they acted very white in TV Mm -hmm. and a TV TV show like Blackish and some of the other ones we've had in recent years, I think portray a greater 
societal truth to what the black experience is. And we need to understand that as white people to understand that our, where our privilege is. Yeah. And so then there comes the issue of, you know, what do we look for in an ally? Um, I, I do, would I be putting you on the spot to ask you how you, uh, how much thought you give to being allies, being into allyship? Yeah, no, the, not putting me on the spot at all. Um, you jerk. Um, <laughs> no, he, here's, so, so I do have to tell the anecdote of, um, so, so my, fa- my father was, um, my grandfather before him was a business owner in Rochester, New York. Um, they owned a, a sizable plant and they, um, at one point there was a fire at the plant and they needed to relocate and they had spotted this spot that they wanted to relocate their plant, build a bigger one. And as it turns out, my grandfather, of course, knew the mayor because, you know, one white guy knows another white guy, et cetera, mm-hmm. the chamber of commerce, blah, blah, blah. And they, um, forcefully displaced, um, an entire community in order to move the plant to this location. This is in the um, early sixties. And um, we are right now starting to recognize the impact of that, um, the family history of that, the fact that my, you know, grandfather's brother was, he was, an, he was a racist and mm-hmm. wouldn't hire people, uh, he wouldn't hire black people to, the, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. we're, we're all of a sudden recognizing that and trying to figure out what to do with it because there was an entire church community that was displaced because of this move. A church was taken down that they had built with their own money. Um, all of this stuff now. Okay, so what do we do with that? What's what do we the do reparation? With that? Right. What are is, the amends? Yeah, and is, there might be actual amends that we can make. I don't know, but certainly step one is trying to find them, and we've tried to find them, and, and etc. I don't know. I mean, that's so it's so specific and so factual, right? Mm-hmm. And that I don't even think it was, it's what you were asking originally, but that's the first thing that comes to mind is we're as a family right now dealing with our last name. What do we do with the fact that it's tainted? Right. You know, how, how do yeah. And that's, that's, that is a good question. And, you know, for me, whenever anybody, and I get this asked a lot, uh, I did a Ted talk and just about every single person afterwards said, you know, how can, because I talked about, you know, what the, for me, the very first step that you can be for an ally is believe the stories of the marginalized. Mm. Believe when somebody says, this has happened to me. Believe women when they say, I have been assaulted by this nice guy. Believe transgender women when they say, I am a woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a real that's a real basic one right there. You know, believe, uh, believe, you know, black people when they say that the police are not their friends. Believe the Hispanics when they say I am seeking asylum because my country is a war zone brought on in part by our country in a large part. Yeah, there are so many ways. But the first thing it starts with is belief, making sure you believe. And then the next question is, well, what can I do? Yeah, that is the next question that any ally is. What can because everybody is going to be different. So, you know, what can you do? Well, the first thing to do is at least believe and, and, and let people know that you believe. Yeah, I had a friend a couple of weeks ago. She's a bartender on, we, on the weekends for a catering company. And she's at this event and she recognizes this guy. They're in a wedding party and the guy comes up and says, oh, my brother's trans. And she's like, oh, okay. And then eventually it was like, oh, no, we're just joking. That's, you know, and... Mm. So 
the next thing out of her mouth was immediately she said to me, I confronted him and said, I have a transgender friend. That joke is not nice. Mm. And I think a good ally also becomes our advocates, especially when we're not there. Right. They step in mm. between us and, 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 the, and the bigotry. Yep. I uh, recently was challenged by um, a black friend of mine who essentially, I was saying I'm not, I don't see situations where I could step in. I don't hear bad jokes. I don't, like, I, I, I feel like maybe it's just because I live in a particular world, mm -hmm. right? And I, and I make that excuse of like, well, I just don't, I don't see it in front of me. And essentially what she said was, eh, that's just not true. Right. <laughs> a, you don't, uh, y your eyes aren't open to it, mm -hmm. um, to the, to the stuff that, that you could be seeing around you. And then B, the other challenge was, well, that's pretty sad about where you hang out. <laughs> like, like, how are you not, how are you not, um, out and about and, and, and seeing more of the world? Um, you know, am I, am I living in a bubble that I'm not seeing this? Well, that's a good point. I do stay home most of the time, but well, and when I go out, it's pretty much in white crowds. So. Yeah. And, and, and I look at Rochester and I've been here for going on 11 years. I love this place, but it is very segregated <laughs> by zip code. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and it's unfortunate. Yeah. The, the city crescent that they talk about that's on the West side. Where all like, like if you look at the crime rate and you look at the population of, of immigrants and you look at the income rate, it's all in the same spot. And but it, but it, but there's a difference between acknowledging that and blaming the people who live there for their lives. Mm -hmm. There yeah. there are two. That's two entirely different things. It's it's an entirely different thing to say. Uh, you know, Baltimore has an issue with crime and poverty, and saying. Well, Baltimore, those black people are, are not, they don't take care of themselves. And, and ignoring the fact that there has been redlining oh, and, and yeah, like we you beat me to it. Yeah. The, the redlining of those, <laughs> of those neighborhoods, the redlining yeah. that allowed your grandfather yep. to just take care, take a neighborhood out. Yep. The, they, the, I'm old enough in your, the can of worms. Were you in, were you in town when the can of worms was a thing, mm. Amy? No. The can of worms is where 490 and 590 met. Yep. And it was a really, really narrow part. And there, it was, it was, a, it was at one point, there was like the heaviest traffic, like heaviest quarter mile of traffic ever because there'd be four lanes, two lanes going, you know, two lanes crossing each other in all these different permutations. And it was next to impossible to go through there. And the reason why the can of worms existed there was because it had to be put in Brighton and there were no black neighborhoods that could be raised to make the, make the byway safe. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. I guess that actually makes uh, sense based on the history. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Well, I, that, that's okay. First off, I need to say that is my interpretation of it, why that happened. Oh, okay. Because I, I actually, it sounded historically accurate. Yeah. I, and I realize as I'm saying that, that I'm, I'm telling that is my interpretation. I wanted to qualify that, that that was my interpretation of the reason why is because there was no black neighborhoods in that area to, to or yeah. not enough black neighborhoods in that area to take out. Yeah. Was mm. Midtown there? Uh, Midtown was actually in Midtown Tennis. 
Yeah. Yeah. That, why is Midtown Tennis in Brighton? That's a really interesting question right there. And that, that will have to be a question for another time because we are running out of time for this big one. I want to thank our guest, the wonderful, brilliant, funny, and generous with his time, Rick Starpoli. Starpoli. Rick Starpoli. I am, I am so bad with that. And I'm going to hang out with your aunt because she says your name properly. Uh, good call. Good call. Yeah. You're good with other things. Yeah, I'm good with other it's things. And, and I really appreciate you. And hopefully, yeah. Sometime we can bring you back on again if you'd be interested. Uh, you have to bring Tiffany. I'm definitely oh, going to bring definitely. Tiffany. Yeah. Definitely want to bring Tiffany here yeah. first, or then as a couple. That we'll, <laughs> we can get a bunch of shows out of you guys. There we go. <laughs> we're we're going to milk you for all your worth. <laughs> Amy, any last thoughts? Yeah, well, I'd like to thank Rick as well. I've not met him before today, so thank you so much for coming in. That's nice me. Um, I think one of the things you know that I walk away from is. You know, I understand the privilege that I've lost, but I also understand the privilege that I retain just by the nature of being a Caucasian. Mm. Thank mm-hmm. you very much. And that is that is where we're going to end. We'll come back with our quick wrap up and uh, reminders of things coming up right after this. This is Transformation, Transformation Thursday because we're busy on Tuesdays. Yes. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. This is Amy Stevens. And Penny Sterling. And both of our pronouns are she, her. And we would like to thank the he, him of Rick Starpoli one last time for being on our show. It was a wonderful, wonderful show. Yeah, and before we leave real quick, just remember to go to TransformationThursday.com. You can choose to put in the www or not. It's up to you, whatever browser you like. I like the www. Ooh, baby. (laughs) You make everything sexual, Amy. My my kid's in the room, Penny. You're still doing it, Amy. No, right. Finish it up here. Okay. So on our Patreon page, you can see uh, eventually we're going to, once we get this downloaded and all these podcasts out on your favorite podcast provider, uh, we're going to start providing some patron-only content. That's the word I'm looking for. And then already there, I've done some videos so you can see all the stuff that's been going on with my transformation and my transition and as well, some of the fits and starts we had to get this little podcast off the ground. Plus with each in, with each podcast, we will include the links that we have with our guests if there are any or anything that we talk about. Yep. But right now, we've had a great hour here today, so I think it's time to say goodnight. Good night, Amy. Good night, Penny. And good night, everybody out there.